welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we've got a review of Martin Scorsese's epic tale of Jesuit priests on the search for their missing mentor in feudal Japan, Silence. And then we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. Plus, the special features segment returns next week. If you just can't get enough of us muttering about Marty, keep an eye out for our bonus episode, Scrutinizing Scorsese, in which we take a deep, informal retrospective dive into the career of America's favorite grandfatherly auteur. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and the episode will automatically appear in your feed when it drops sometime next week. But first... Midnight Warriors, how about a little magic trick up top? I'm going to make Hunter disappear for this segment, and in his place, how about I bring in Jacob Graves, fresh off a trip from La La Land. Oh, greetings, and it really was a trip to La La Land. I did the Griffith Park Observatory, I uh, went to the WB Lot Tour, and went to the Café Sur La Lot coffee shop. Um, and is, that I a, said is that a real coffee shop? Uh, no, it is as fake as everything else in every other movie I learned. <laughs> and I also sat in traffic and uh, experienced another day in the sun. Was that real traffic? Oh, it was real traffic. All right. it, we did not get out of the car and dance. Well, I was the only one. Um, other people did honk, though. Did you get the insurance on the rental? No, I didn't. No, that there's a long off-mic story on insurance on that rental car, by the way. <laughs> All right, Jake. Well, uh, the reason I made you magically appear here is because uh, we're going to change things up a little bit, and we're going to talk about the Fantasy Movie League recap off the top of the show this week. All right. Well... Uh, I should probably start off explaining what it is for all the listeners who usually skip right over this part of the show. (laughs) So each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight screen cineplex with real world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit WSAMPod.com slash Fantasy Movie League to sign up and get all the details. So, let's dive into our recap of week 5 of the spring season, which saw the biggest crop of new releases in quite some time. We got the animated feature The Boss Baby, a sequel to a classic that didn't need a sequel in T2 Trainspotting, a sexy lady in a bodysuit for Ghost in the Shell, and The Zookeeper's Wife, which suffered from a lack of description of how said zoo was acquired. I think they bought it. Uh, I I don't know. I heard they timeshared a zoo. (laughs) But regardless of the method of acquisition, any of these four films had solid shots at a spot in the perfect cineplex. Well, not really Ghost in the Shell because its bad reviews isn't really helping it. And also the paltry theater count for T2 meant that it was right out. So really you had to pick between the Jack Donaghy as a baby film or We Bought a Zoo 2, The Zoo Had Nazis. (laughs) Which is a movie I would watch, by the way. Let's just talk about that. Uh, so uh, after a big $1.5 million Thursday preview number, I bet big on the boss baby going with two screens of the kids film. And really, like we said, I was in Los Angeles. It was nine in the morning due to the time zone difference. And I was driving around attempting to not get murdered and settled on a last minute lineup with no help from things like numbers or theater counts. So yeah, my lack of research had me playing six screens of some random filler that I just kind of picked. So uh, that is not a way to win. If I were paying attention and using FML Nerds lineup analyzer, as you all should be doing, uh, you should have landed on four screens of the best performer, the zookeeper's wife, with a screen of Kong Skull Island and one screen of Logan for good measure. Uh, By the way, Chris, I tried to see Kong Skull Island in L.A. Uh, It's like $16 to see a movie there. Yeah. It is, and and I, I thought about seeing Ghost in the Shell, but it was only in 3D, and it was like $21. Why would you ever see a movie? Like, I like movies, but not like $20 like a movie. Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah. Well, as for our league, uh, Cineplex Nutbolts97 took away the prize for this week with two screens each of Boss Baby, Kong, Zookeeper, and Hidden Figures. Also, number 28 overall Cineplex, Joe's Discount Movies, has moved into the first place slot in our league, and the pack of consensus pickers has been whittled down to just six, all tied for fourth place. So, Chris, how did you do this week? Wait, what did you just say? The consensus pickers? What? So, there's been there's been a big like group of people all tied in our league. We all like had the perfect Cineplex in week one, and then I fell off, and it got whittled down from like... 30 or so people with the same lineup just uh-huh. getting whittled down slowly each week into a smaller and smaller group. So there's a group 
that is all tied for fourth place who have picked the same exact lineup every single week. Hey, Jake, and, uh, you want to you wanna know a secret? What's that? I've stopped paying attention to that league. I only have, pay attention to the secret league. Ooh, the secret league. Yeah. Yeah, the, the secret league's pretty good. I'm in third in the secret league. I'm... That's 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 the real league. I'm still in like 11th or 12th in the secret league. I'm not doing great, but you have you have a baby. You don't have time for this. I, I have a baby and I've decided that I'm only going to be playing uh, zero bucks left Cineplexes the rest of the season. That that should almost be a rule. I, w- I wish you could make a like a second lineup or a second account just for zero zero dollar. You got to you got to have <laughs> the best full budget. Cineplex. Yeah, yeah, that would that would be a good. Yeah, like side bet sort of sort of thing. Yeah, they they do have some side games that people do in FML, but it involves but like But it's all manual, right? Yeah, you got to fill out like a Google sheet and they make yeah. sure you don't change it after certain times. It's Yeah, I'm it, not I'm not doing that. No. So, coming up this week, we have new releases. Uh Smurfs: The Lost Village Full of Lady Smurfs. Then there's Going in Style, a film starring Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, and Alan Arkin that should have been called Grumpy Old Bank Robbers. Is this a sequel to The Bucket List? What if it's a sequel to The Bucket List? I hadn't thought about that. What if it's a sequel to The Bucket List? And finally, a Christian drama starring Faye Dunaway called The Case for Christ. Faye Dunaway's still making movies? Uh, I, I think this is probably one where they just spent some of the budget to get like a big name in it, and she's probably in it for like five minutes. Huh. It's not like I haven't heard of this. It's not starring Faye Dunaway. I haven't either, and I haven't watched the trailer yet. But do any of these strike your fancy for your Cineplex this week, Chris? Uh, I'll probably play some Smurfs. You think? Yeah, I mean, it's kids' movie. But they got Boss Baby out. Yeah, but Boss Baby's expensive. I know. And Smurfs did well enough to get a sequel, so it can't be that bad. I, I don't think that bar is that high for kids' movies to get a sequel. I mean, Nomeo and Juliet's getting a sequel. Yeah, the bar is they make money. Obviously, it made money. I, th- I watched the trailer for it, and sometimes I watch it. I even watched the Despicable Me 3 trailer and thought, you know, that doesn't look too bad. And Smurfs it, it, looks... It actually mm. does look better than at least the second Despicable Me and the Minions solo movie. It looks have okay. You, have you seen any of those, Chris? I have not. I've seen enough of them to know that I'm not going to. Well, guess what? You have a kid now. In a couple years, you're going to see every kid's movie. Yeah, we're going to we're going to have a whole thing like the minions are going to be like you remember you remember the friend down the street who wasn't allowed to play Pokemon? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, we're we're going to be that family but with minions. Or like everybody around where I was where it was you are not watching Teletubbies. Weird. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh what what about uh going in style? Are is, are you even going to see that one? Um, I going in style. I I think maybe no. I was gonna say going in style might be one that's like a filler later on. But I don't. I just maybe maybe it gets the olds out. I I feel bad when actors get a little older. Actors you like, you you still look at the lineup and you're like, oh, that's one of those old man movies. And yeah. none of them will ever be as good as Space Cowboys. <laughs> I've never seen Space Cowboys. You've never seen Sp- Space Cowboys is really good. I think uh, it's on HBO Go right now. Um, but no, like I, I just I don't know about going in style. If it was here's here's like I what the thing that I think they're doing wrong is they're trying to do a genre thing. And they're like, look, it's a genre thing, but they're old men. So they're going to have jokes about how they're old men. You know how you should do an old man movie? Have you seen The Intern? No, I haven't. The Intern. It's not it's not anything spectacular but it is a charming little movie you know i've actually heard that from a few people de niro is great hathaway is great uh highly recommend don't go in with like super high hopes but i think you'll enjoy it hmm. yeah so uh, just to just to clarify with smurfs so smurfs were sitting at it's it's less than beauty and the beast it's less than boss baby so i think i'm thinking maybe i'll get a little more bang for my buck out of out of playing two smurfs beauty and the beast there's no way beauty and the beast can sustain right and boss baby maybe it continues but uh i don't know i'm obviously not the person to be asking for this but here's here's my lineup right now and i have zero bucks left two smurfs four logans a shack and a lego batman okay uh i I really don't know and i gotta write an article in the next you know day or so but i'm at five ghosts in the shell a power rangers and two get out I know Ghost in the Shell doesn't have great reviews, but it's it's had a pretty good price point, you know, 100, 150 bucks. Yeah, but are people going to continue to see it? Is the question. I don't. I don't know. Or, or, is that one you're going to see, Chris? I actually would like to see it. Uh, at this point, I'm. There's no way I'm going to be able to see it in the theater because 
I haven't seen anything in the theater in since Get Out. And, oh, really? Yeah, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna waste my next chance on on that. But no, no, that's not worth it. Uh, last thing I saw was Beauty and the Beast. Oh, how was that? It was fine. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I think the next one I'm gonna try to see. Uh, out of the list of stuff that's out now might be Kong. Well, apparently you tried to, but you were too cheap to uh, actually pay up. Or I was too scared to walk across the street. LA is a scary town, guys. Stay in is the it, South. Is it really? Yeah, stay, stay in the South. That's, <laughs> oh my uh, gosh. The only LA I'll go to is Louisiana. That's it. End of story. All right. <laughs> if you still need more FML in your life, catch my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAM Pod. Well, Jake, thanks for stopping by. Do you want to stick around and uh, discuss silence? Uh, well, I was kind of thinking that I would go sleep off this this jet lag. Okay, it's it's real, people. It's not made up. I've learned. All right, fair enough. Well, uh, I'll catch you on the next one. Yeah, best of luck with the review, guys. Thanks. And for you, Midnight Warriors, stick around because we've got a review of Martin Scorsese's Silence coming up next. But, Padre, if we are forced to trample on the Lord, on the, for me, you must pray for courage, Mokichi. But if we do not do what they want, there can be danger for everyone in the village. They can be put in prison, taken away forever. What should we do? Trample. Trample. That's all right to trample. What are you saying? You can't. Mokichi? You can't. Set in the 17th century at a time when Christianity was outlawed in Japan and followers were persecuted, missionary priest Father Fier, played by Liam Neeson, is reported to have apostatized, denying Christ by trampling on his face on a bronze plaque called a fume. His Padawan priests, Father Garpe and Father Rodriguez, played by Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield respectively, journey to the island nation to seek the truth and spread the gospel despite the danger. Anything more would be a spoiler, but if you are unfamiliar with the book, the movie will not be what you expect at all. It is a Rorschach test, and opinions will vary based on your response to the questions that silence asks. In the film, it is argued that Japan is a swamp in which the seed of Christianity cannot grow. Ironic, then, that silence is both wholly Japanese and thoroughly Catholic. That owes much to Catholic convert Endo's novel, which Scorsese clearly holds in reverence. Scorsese likewise reveres Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa and pays homage to the master with his lengthy static shots surveying the smoke, muck, and mud of a merciless Mother Nature. Yet even more merciless than Mother Nature is human nature. This film asks a question that has been plaguing humankind since the beginning. Why would a just God remain silent in the face of human suffering? Chris, where do we even begin? Well, how about this? Silence succeeded critically, but only marginally, and was a failure on the awards circuit and at the box office. Is the rest of the world wrong, and will they ever discover silence? I think to say that it succeeded critically, but only marginally, is maybe a little mis... I, uh, it was like 85, 85% something like that, is, yeah. Which is still solid. solid. It's in, But at the same time, I do understand, like... This film was really effective to me, which I think we we spoke about a little bit when we discussed uh, the Last Temptation of Christ in the place of this, because we we were so adamant about discussing it when people could actually see it. Mm-hmm. Um, now that it's out, I hope it uh, gains a wider audience. I think it's you know as much as anything, it it's sort of it's a type of movie that maybe should have come out in like April or May of last year and not in the weird, very dense Oscar season that it did. Because ultimately, it was a weird rollout where basically by the time they reached a national release, they were already pulling it back, mm-hmm. um, which made it difficult to see, difficult to hear about. And it's it's odd, though, because like promotionally, like the trailer was one of my favorite trailers of last year. The, no, that's the thing, is the marketing was extremely effective and su- 
insofar as conveying the urgency and the suspense yeah. of at least the story, if not necessarily the with, movie. With, without giving right. away what it was. But I think you could have released this movie on any day, on any month of the year, and it wouldn't have done well necessarily. You and I have talked about this before, is that we are a little over one year removed of Spotlight winning the best picture mm-hmm. of the year. And I and I like Spotlight, but we are one year removed about a movie in which the villains are Catholic priests. And then you have Silence, which even if they're not quote-unquote heroes, they're at least sympathetic protagonists. Yeah. And so this was this was wrong time, marketing-wise. Marketing-wise, film culture-wise, wrong place, wrong time for this movie to really make a dent. And so that's why I do feel, I do hope that it will find an audience in 20 years from now. It'll be something that is truly something that people remember fondly. I hope it doesn't take that long. I mean, because to be, to be perfectly frank and perfectly honest, like I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone who listened to our last temptation of Christ episode that well, let's, let's just say we are both sort of giddy to talk about this, this film. Mm-hmm. It, it was um, after reassessing, you know, I, I saw it after I had done my top 10, I made my top 10, a top 11 to fit this in at my number two spot for last year. After, um, after Moonlight. Okay. Um, which is, I mean, it's, it's close. They both affected me in a similar personal sort of, sort of way that, that was, uh, remarkable and something that I don't see often once in a year. Um, but I hope it's the type of film that it doesn't take 20 years. You know, I hope, you know, two, three, four, five years from now, it's looked at as, uh, not only a, a great piece of filmmaking, but, Really, I think this might be Martin Scorsese's absolute masterpiece. And I mean that in the uh, the strongest sense of this is the culmination of everything that he has sort of learned and done as a director over the course of 50 years. And it is on display with such uh, knowledge and restraint and perfect it's it, everything is perfectly poised and displayed and it's remarkable. It's um, you know, it, it, it is at once personal and universal and it rides a fine line that I think is difficult where there's not really a villain to this movie. Like the inquisitor is the villain, but at the same time he humanizes him to a point where you, you understand his plight Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, it, it is a movie that needs to be seen. I think as soon as people start seeing it, um, its reputation is going to start changing. So to that point, um, if this is indeed arguably the greatest American filmmaker, greatest living filmmakers masterpiece, would this transcend then moonlight? Um, I, and it's, it's a personal thing there and it's just moonlight hit me in a very specific way. Um, maybe if you, if you take them toe to toe on a totally like, uh, technical level of mastery. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the thing that, you know, and I, I feel like I say this time and time again, but that's the thing that I love about, about cinema and about discussing cinema is if you're not going to bring something personal to it, then what's the point? And that's the thing. Like he does, he brings something very personal to it. Um, that is just beautifully uh, examined. Well, this this completely undercuts my authority as a film critic. I have not seen Moonlight yet. It's just as as our listeners know, I've been I have other side projects that have interfered with that. But um, to that point, I cannot see. Have sight unseen, having not seen Moonlight, I cannot see it personally transcending silence for me. As far I, as not just the best picture of the year, but just like this epical achievement. Yeah, no, I, I think and I, I think that's perfectly fine. Like I Moonlight is a type of movie that I I absolutely love and adore, and I at the same time don't expect anyone else to have the same reaction to it as I do. Like when when they do, and I you know, I have several friends who have seen it because uh, of my strong recommendation and a handful of them, you know, were, you probably would not have seen it, uh, with, without a recommendation and, and were, you know, struck by just how beautiful and lyrical and personal it is. And a handful of them said, Oh, well, 
it's, I guess I can see what's good about it, but it didn't work for me. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I'm sure that'll be a reaction, uh, from some people for, uh, for this film as well. But I think, uh, both, both are movies where if you are open to receiving what it is trying to, uh, to present, you're going to be shocked and changed and, and really like drawn in. Yeah. And to that point, what I love about silence versus, any other picture that that was released last year necessarily is that silence could have been released in any year. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think Martin Scorsese could have necessarily made it in a year, but this, the, the finished product could have been released in any year and it would have stood the test of time. Yeah. It is not a product of its time. It transcends its time because it is about a subject matter that has been with humanity since the beginning. Yeah. Well, but it's, but it is also back to like the mastery of it. It is Scorsese, at, you know, he is I, a younger score says he could not have made this because I think it takes a restraint that he didn't necessarily have mm-hmm. a, a fine tuned ability to let a shot sit and linger or to, um, you know, just, he, he may have been a little too active in the story instead of allowing little things to, uh, to play out. Mm-hmm. And because I mean, there it's, I can't remember the last time I saw a film that the the title of the film was so aptly appropriate to not only like what, it, you know, obviously the it refers to the silence of God and how one deals with that. But also it is a ethos of the picture itself. Yeah. Uh, irony, of course, being is that Shizako Indu did not like the title silence. Really? He did not. Like, yeah. You know what? And- I, you know what I didn't like? The actual title silence on this film. Um, really, my biggest criticism of this entire film, really boring, just serif. It looks like a, looks like Helvetica Ultra Thin. I don't know if it is. At least or, they didn't do Papyrus or something like that. At least they didn't do Papyrus. But really, like, I, I checked through and both times I took notes, there's, there are four notes because it's the opening titles and then the, the credits of lazy, boring typeface. Who chose this? So yeah. apparently it really bothered me. Much like Japan is described as a swamp in which Christianity can't grow. Here's curmudgeon hunter talking. Mm-hmm. Everyone's fair curmudgeon hunter. Um, I feel like we live in a pop culture and a film culture in which this is in which a film like silence cannot grow. And so I think that accounts in many ways for its failure is this is. And when I say failure, I mean failure commercially and, and box office wise is that people just were not ready to receive this film. And even critics who liked it, one thing that that stood out to me is one critic who liked it said is that this film makes me want to be a Christian. This, in, for lack of better words, this isn't even a movie. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. like a filmed statement, a filmed testament. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That That happens to just be on celluloid. And so it's not you. You almost cannot judge it as you would a normal movie. It's kind of like what we talked about with the Last Temptation of Christ: is you don't like it or you don't dislike. You just experience it and you're changed as a consequence of right. it. I. But I think it's interesting. You you mentioned that it's sort of a Rorschach test in your mm-hmm. your intro, and I I think it's there's also that element to it as well. Where I've seen reviews where, um, you know. It's sort of approached as I've seen people talk about the violence and and how it's uh, extremely uh, concerning and and maybe over the top. And then I've seen other people say, "Well, the violence is the point," and and the point is that there is no point. And you know that it, it does sort of function for whatever your worldview is. There's a way in, um, and so I it's I would be interested to almost have like a large round table discussion with a, you know, 10 people who see it, who all from different backgrounds, because I think there, there would be, that would be a, a great sort of melting pot of, of thought and experience because it, I think it's open to um, not only presenting this very personal, very Catholic um, sort of vantage point, but, but also um, many others. And, uh, not, I, I guess the thing, the thing that I, I really admire about it is the way that it doesn't say this is, this is the ultimate, I am the way and the truth and the light. And this is how 
uh, you must approach something, but more like let's let's be universally uh, understandable, even if this is not a personal experience. Is that does that translate? No, does that no, make sense? No, what you just said makes sense, but I don't agree. I uh, I don't I don't agree. I feel like this is very much we are suffering for the right cause and even and even if people don't agree and even if they and even if they're the way they articulate their di- this their disagreement with us we have to stand for truth and this is the truth and that if we do not stand for that truth then we are nothing Okay, what let's let's talk about this is something I really wanted to get into. We're almost not even talking about the movie, and that's what yeah, I love. We're not we're, talking we're, about the movie, we're, we're getting, talking about we're the ideas. Into theological right. but Kichiro. The their sort of guide there. He's he's and a he's, very and he's ever, he's he's you and me. He's all of us. This is so easy for us to be Well and exactly. That's I mean he is first of all, he's very much a Toshira Mifune style character. Um that, that Kurosawa would have had um, in in his films, um, being that he's he's a little big and a little broad and a little buffoonish, mm-hmm. um, but a whole lot of heart. And I, to me, he is the entry point, and he is the the brightest flame. Like if if I'm being perfectly frank, like if I was put in his position, the numerous times that that he is put in delicate situations, I would probably trample. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend like I am, uh, more pious than, than I am. Like it would be, it would be difficult to, to not say, okay, well, if I, if I do this, then I can get off scot-free and, but the thing I live, yeah, yeah, I live, uh, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not persecuted. I'm not tortured. I'm not I, killed. I, I, I live to another day, but giant caveat is and and this is the thing that i think is so interesting about the uh inquisitor's sort of ultimate goal is he realizes that he is tormenting people twofold one by torturing them physically here here's the deal chris i'm pretty sure we are just going like even if we're not like directly talking about spoilers it's going to infiltrate so i think now might be a good time to just say spoilers So as I was saying, the Inquisitor, um, he he can either torture you physically or he can torture you mentally and emotionally. And with many, it is physical. You know, we see some incredibly difficult scenes of I mean, it opens on on the scene of and we have Father Ferrero um, giving this very. uh stark sort of narration, which we find out is like a letter back home. Um, but about, about the torture of mm-hmm. these missionaries. And then, and then we see, and that's, that is difficult to watch, although not like it's not brazen and it's not, you know, it's not glorifying anything or it's not being glorifying. The wrong but, at the, but at the same time, it's brutal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and then you see uh, this, I mean, that terrible water crucifixion, torture mm-hmm. um which is just of, of the villagers um so you you see that physical torment but then you've got kikichiro who he like we said he he lives another day but then he has the mental anguish and of what he uh what he allowed to happen to his family or his friends or what he you know he didn't have the the uh, the fortitude to do the same thing that his family did or, you know, it's there. It's just a, it's a, I guess a double-edged sword to bring our listeners up to speed is what made Kichiro, um, an interesting character is that he stayed as much as that at any other time he wished he were alive whenever Christianity wasn't persecuted. Cause he would be just fine. Yeah. But because he was in a time when it was persecuted, he was a coward. 
And so that, and so that's why I say when, that's why I said earlier is that that's kind of Chris and I, and, you know, maybe you too listening is that it's very easy for us to believe because we're not being persecuted. And that's who Kikichiro was. His, he was kind of us for lack of better words. Um, I, I wasn't sure I was going to get into this until later, but I'll get into this now is, and we'll, and I'll go ahead and put it, this in the show notes as well, is that, um, some Catholic commentators and Christian commentators said this is not a quote-unquote Catholic film or Christian film, one of whom is uh, Bishop Robert Barron of the Diocese of Santa Monica, Los Angeles, something like that. And the way he equated it, and here we are in spoilers, the way he equated it is imagine if some special forces operatives were captured by al-qaeda or isis or something like that and rejected the united states and then joined isis we wouldn't praise them as heroes Mm -hmm. necessarily and so ergo this isn't a quote-unquote christian film and that has some validity to it i i get that but i also like that that's the i guess sort of the principle uh kind of tug of war here is doctrine versus personal experience. And this movie feels so much more like it's on the side of personal experience. And also, you know, the thing, the, one of the things I find most compelling is the way that, as, as I said, the inquisitor is not just a straight villain. He is, uh, shades of, and he's almost, he's almost the dark side of strict doctrine in, in a way that he sees this as, okay, well, I don't really care about the religion itself, but I care about what bringing the religion here means for feudal Japan and the system that we have. Well, and actually to that point is he may be the most, it may be that it may be the ultimate black and white villain is that his justification makes sense, is that you can see where he's coming from. And so that is the temptation of evil, is that if if evil were just, oh, well, this is clearly wrong, mm-hmm. then it's easy to resist. But if evil makes sense, well, and if you can see where evil comes from, then it's that much that's it's that much easier to accept. That's interesting because Rodriguez actually, he has that quote about, I, I can't remember it exactly, but it's, um, I, I can feel the evil all around me. I can even feel it in the beauty. Um, there's this sort of he's tangling with the temptation and and um, all of that. I, I think it's just after he's been captured by the um, by the water. But the the thing is that he's still ultimately he's a hypocrite. You know, towards his his Buddhist faith, mm-hmm. he is acting in a hypocritical manner. But in a way that he thinks is ultimately he is using it as a as a means to maintain the state's power. Right, right, and and so that's a um, where because I I think that discussion between him and um, Rodriguez is really really incredible and powerful, and it's it's probably the closest thing that makes you think like oh I I can I can see your point of view I can get it and then when he comes up with the whole concubine story and sort of he he then paints it in a way where you realize oh like once he at least for me like once he had sort of almost won me over then he shows me the dark side of his his worldview and thought and plan and you realize oh well but you're not you say that you are um you're for, you know, harmony and being one with nature and all this, but you're also bringing chaos. I wouldn't even say chaos. I would say just chaotic. Actually, order? actually, no, I would, I would say just straight order is you are using the temptation of your logic in order to oppress people. But he is bringing chaos to these villagers who he is. Uh, you know, like the, the first village that they land at where they end up having, what is it? Four of their villagers, um, uh, sacred or not sacrificed, but tortured, mm-hmm. um, that I, I, there is, there is definitely an element of chaos that is intended to suppress. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I'm, where I'm coming at with that is it's this, this element of, okay, well, I'm going to make it so, uh, hostile 
that you just you you don't want to even mess with it. Well, and ultimately the the implication of that is that all any human being, regardless of religion or regardless of background, race, whatever, we are all after the same thing as that is comfort, mm-hmm. for lack of better words. And so when that comfort is disrupted, we are willing to sacrifice what we believe. Well, or at least what we claim to believe. Right. And so that's that that in many ways that's what this is about is because to go back to what uh, uh, Bishop Barron said is that the true heroes of this film are as you mentioned earlier the people who were crucified in the water and who drowned is that they were the ones who were willing to be tortured and died for what they believed in even in sacrifice their quote unquote comfort mm-hmm. for what they believed but I think it also asks to what purpose. You know, there there is a what what does their martyrdom win them? Well, salvation. If you believe, I mean, if that's what you believe, it ultimately salvation. But but can't they also get? I mean, can't Kikichiro still get salvation? Well, that's not my and and the only answer to that is that is not my call. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not but, that's my that's not my call. But theoretically, and and theologically. It is possible, mm-hmm. right? And that's why theologically there exists the idea of purgatory. Okay, and, and that's and see that's where we get into. Let's talk like about a, the movie. That's, where, that's <laughs> where we get into a, a gray area. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the movie. Um, um, I mentioned Kurosawa. You've talked about this too. This is almost a Kurosawa movie, and I loved that about it. Is it's less a Scorsese movie than it is a Kurosawa movie? I don't, I don't know if I would say that exactly. I mean, I I would say it is a. Um, and, and I think Scorsese does, um, he does homage or reference, right. And he knows w- why and how to, uh, try to, uh, borrow from his, his previous, uh, masters in cinema. And he's definitely doing that. And he's definitely using, you know, uh, Kurosawa used a lot of times, uh, fog and shadow and um stillness to great effect and so he is he is incorporating those things here but it doesn't just feel like he's trying to ape on a kurosawa movie either right it's he's not ripping it off and here i go harping on religion again but um for for, in japan shintoism is, is is of course very much a part of the culture there in in shintoism divinity is found in nature and yet in both this film and then a lot of kurosawa's films it's almost oppressive Mm -hmm. it's it's beautiful on one hand but at the same time it's stifling can we can we talk a bit about we've been pretty heavy theologically um just about about sort of his uh his craft in this his uh, sort of approach to because i think it's it's a very different approach to filmmaking than he he has done um, certainly recently and maybe ever. Well, there were a few moments, particularly whenever Father Ferrer shows back up, mm-hmm. wherever, okay, there's the Scorsese uh, energy. There's the yeah. Scorsese flash. But by and large, no, very much this is a very economical way mm-hmm. to shoot a film. Mm-hmm. And I and and this was this was the film to do it. Well, and at the same time, it you know, it, it, it's odd how much it echoes uh Last Temptation of Christ, but not necessarily in a like one to one, like being, uh, as as you say, economically made. But it's almost it's the other side of it where it's very calm versus the chaos that is most Last, last Temptation of Christ. It's it's also probably his first film since then that's mostly shot out in the wilderness. I mean, you know, Scorsese being a a uh, asthmatic he. Urban likes, director. Yeah, yeah, he he likes to shoot in his uh, natural environment, um, and there's there's I I think Japan itself plays its own character here in in a lot of ways, and I I appreciate that he allows that to um, that to breathe. Well, and he well. also does everything he can to establish that perhaps this is a swamp. Mm-hmm. That 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 this is almost like an apocalypse now kind of kind of place wherever this is the base. Mm-hmm. This is base humanity. 
Well, okay. Let me, let me ask you this then, because I, my, um, my feeling of that isn't so much a like condescending, like we can either, there's a few ways that you can approach it. You can approach it as, well, we can never convert them because they're just too much of heathens or whatever, or, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, another, another way to approach. And this is sort of how I see it is. It's just, we are opposing ideologies that oil and water do not mix and trying to reconcile that, um, is a, a difficult thing that perhaps, uh, let bygones be bygones and just let coexist, let, let, let these ideologies coexist mm-hmm. separately. Do you feel like there is an ultimate, uh, empirical, uh, answer to this is right and this is wrong or as, as, uh, Father Rodriguez says is that the truth is truth, no matter where you live, where you are. And so this film leaves that somewhat ambiguous. So I'm going to actually reference another Shizaku Indu book called The Life of Jesus, which in many ways, more than any Western book I've ever read, really brings the story of Christ home. Mm-hmm. And what he was trying to do in a life of Jesus was was he was trying to he he realized Shizaku Endo, who is a Catholic convert, he realized that the fire and brimstone stuff doesn't work in Japan, so mm-hmm. he was trying to make bring it down to a human level. So I do believe that, as Rodriguez said, the truth is the truth, and so if the truth is the truth, and you care about your fellow man, then you you are semi obligated to transfer that. It's just the language may change the way you tell the story, the the way you convey that. And so while fire and brimstone may not work in Japan, there's another way to go about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, but I guess I don't know if it addresses what I like. I, I feel like there is still a, um, a deference to the unknown or a deference to the, you, you know, they clearly, because these missionaries are their their intent is, uh, is pious and they are, they are not coming in to, um, destroy a culture as the inquisitor right. believes they, they may be an accidental entryway for the West to come in mm-hmm. and, uh, and do so. But that is, that is not their intent. The, oh, I, I think I see where you're coming from. There's an element of what if in any commitment, whether it's a marriage, whether it's religion, there's a, well, what if I married someone else? Or what if I, what if I believed in something else? But ultimately your love of something, your belief in something, your faith in something has to transcend that uncertainty. I, I do think there is still a, as, as much as this, you know, the, the closing shot of this movie is very uh, clearly trying to reach a peace with uh, with this Catholic exploration. But I think it the film itself still leaves uh, there's there's a porousness to it that leaves it open to other ideologies, to particularly the the Buddhist side of things. Uh, to not just be crushed and not be, um, I guess, overtaken and 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 seen as the uh, the wrong side of things, but this it's a duality. The conclusion of this film, and there's a denouement, but the conclusion of this film is Father Rodriguez trampling on the fumes, trampling right. on the image of Christ after after in his mind hearing Christ. Well, let's talk about that. Um, there's three ways to interpret that is one, the most obvious being is that this is Christ who is, leg- who is literally saying through the, f- through the fume is that I was brought into this earth to be trampled upon. There is also the idea that father Rodriguez was just imagining this, like he was in some sort of mania. Right. And then also there's the perspective that this was Satan speaking through the fume. Sure. What is your interpretation of that? I, I mean, my interpretation, this says so much more about me than it does about, you know, the film or intent is, is the first, um, it is a, and I think it's, it's a, um, maybe in my relationship with, uh, Jesus as a 
figure personally and, and you know all of these all the the multi, multiple specter you know sort of uh what what have you um and it also I, I guess it appeals to my uh you know compassion for giving a bit of uh, you know, a second chance or giving relief or and this redemption. Yeah, and and this may be more of a Protestant uh, viewpoint than it is a, a Catholic viewpoint. I don't know. Tell tell me what where where does it stand for you? Um, there's two ways. Is that and again I go back because <laughs> in the you book can, you can pick one. Yeah, exactly. Well, in the book, no, no, soon, no the movie. It, well, the movie. <laughs> well, the actually, movie. I think it was in the movie too. Is in the book slash movie is as soon as he tramples on it, the cock crows. Which is, of course, okay. a reference to right. St. Peter rejecting right. Christ. Um, but as far as me, we'll just talk about me. We won't even talk about theology of it. Is as far as me, I interpreted it as Christ, and that's what made it compelling for me, is him saying, you suffer, put your suffering on me. Mm-hmm. I was born to suffer. The The reason I am here is to suffer for you. Right Now, that may doctrinarily be troublesome. Mm -hmm. But that goes back to the sort of discussion of there's, there's doctrine and then there's personal experience. Right. And so I, and so within, when I read the book and when I watched the movie, I took it as that was Christ speaking for the fume. He was silent throughout the entire film, but then at the culmination of this story, him saying, put your suffering upon me. I was born to suffer. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's how I interpreted it. Okay. I, that, that sort of surprises me just because I, I've kind of felt like you would go a little more, I don't know, fire and brimstone or old school in like, no, he's got it. But okay. That, that surprises me. Well, and, and so that was the emotional experience of this for me is watching it and then coming out of it is just, we, you and I are human. We yeah. are flesh and blood. We are flawed. We are Kikichiru. Exactly. And so this was a situation of whenever we think of miracles, we think of parting the Red Seas or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, at least within the context of this story, a miracle is just as much the voice of Christ saying, I was I was born to suffer for you. And so you've suffered enough. Mm-hmm. And so him coming through the fume and saying that. Well, and but also the you know up until you know we're we're two plus hours in into this film and he has been he has been struggling with this silence you know like and a lot of his um b- before this a lot of his faith was almost a pride thing you know it was dictated exactly. on what he was doing for when when things were going well for his ministry he had faith when things weren't going well he was questioning and so it's for for me, it's also the Jesus broke the silence when he needed to at the at the ultimate time when Rodriguez needed to hear from him, and then that as as we see for um, the the denouement, as you say, like he remains faithful for the rest of his days. Well, and Rodriguez wanted to be a mi- martyr because of pride. He wanted to be a martyr. But he was also afraid. I, th- I honestly think it was more out of pride. I think, and, and pride of, is, of course, the greatest of all sins. Right. So he wanted to be a martyr because of pride. He wanted to demonstrate that his faith was so great that he could be tortured and killed and that his his faith would remain steadfast. But then he was he was thrown be- through the Inquisitor a, a loophole, or not a loophole, but he was thrown for a loop through the Inquisitor of... Well, we're we're just going to torture you mentally, mm-hmm. and then until you reject, we're going to torture people until you apostatize. Yeah, and so and so thrown in that loop, and so again, you can interpret this however you want to, audience. But I interpreted this as, for lack of better words, a, a Deus ex machina, literally, yeah, a Deus yeah. ex machina of God saying, "I'm here to suffer for you." Put your suffering on me. Yeah. It's over. You've done enough. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Noah Cross was Mulray's baby daddy. And also 
regular dad. Okay, Chris, there is an old Hasidic saying that with wine comes the truth. So what, I'm not just going to say beer, but what alcohol recommendation do you have for today's episode? It is It is going to remain a beer. It will, I think, always remain a beer. Um, but I, I do have a connection back into uh, silence in, in a few ways. So what, uh, what I picked to pair with silence, and I think this pairs really nicely, um, actually is three philosophers by brewery Amagang in Cooperstown, New York. And this is a Belgian quad, which is a, basically a, a Belgian quadruple is historically a Trappist beer, um, which is to say a beer brewed by monks. Mm-hmm. So we've got that. We've also got this, uh, this title of the three philosophers. So, you know, bring the, we got, we got these three guys see where I'm going. Okay. You don't care. Um, no, no, I absolutely do care. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you roll. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, this is, uh, clocking in at, as, as a lot of quads, you know, quads are generally higher point. Um, beers is clocking in at nearly 10% ABV, uh, pretty low IBU on it. Um, at just 19, this is a pretty special sort of beer. So Amagang, what they did is they took their quad and then they blended it with Leafman Creek, which is a cherry lambic beer. Um, and a lambic is a, a very fruity, somewhat sour um, sort of beer. Like a line and kugel? Not like a line and kugel. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's difficult to describe exactly. It's, it's extremely fruity, extremely... Like it's almost like a fruity stout is the, like it's, if you, if you try one, you'll be like, okay, that makes sense. Just hearing it described, it probably makes zero sense to you, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, and I think it's, I think the mixture is like 98% Amagang quad to 2% of this, uh, Leafman's Creek, but just enough to give it a tiny, like it's really, um, I taste the cherry on the very tail end. Um, of this and Alambic is not a beer that I particularly love. It's like, it's a type of type of thing that you only really want one of it's super sweet, generally a little sour, very dense. Um, but it's in this mixture adds a nice, adds a nice note to it. And this is, this is a really full flavored beer. Um, it's savory, it's boozy, but the booziness isn't too overpowering, which is nice and something that comes in at 10% or nearly 10%. Um, and it has notes of, of toffee. And like I said, that light fruity, uh, cherry flavor to it. And for me, I don't, this is also probably a, something that, that someone who's a real beer connoisseur, um, could perhaps explain better. But to me, quads always there, they have a yeast profile. That's almost like a, a pear or a, uh, apple flavor to it. And so it's, it's got that in there, like deep in the middle as well. Um, that's pretty nice and a nice, uh, kind of sugary malt. Um, but I, I think there's really like, I, I'm pretty happy with this, this pairing and not just because it's, it, you know, has my typical check the box of, you know, kitschy connection. Yeah. Um, I, I think three philosophers is maybe the perfect beer to, to drink along with, uh, silence. So, uh, look forward at your local uh, liquor store that sells, you know, nice fine craft beers and crack one open when you inevitably see silence because you need to, because it is a masterpiece. Well, silence is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, please tell us your thoughts at hello or starts at midnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484 484- for cinema. Stick around for really rad recommendations up next. What makes the sun go down? What makes the world spin around? It's the time we can't have back. We need the most. How can I stop you in your track? Trains moving way. Oh 
All right, Chris, we have talked about very, very deep subject matter and beer. Yes. So I am hoping that your recommendation is uh, uh, worthy of what we've discussed. What have you got for us? My recommendation is going to be a little bit lighter. Um, it's and it's sort of a one off of a of a train of thought. So I'll tell you how I got there. Um, my recommendation is The Fallen Idol, which is a film from 1948, directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, adapted from Greene's uh, from a short story by Greene, who happens to be or happened to be a Catholic writer who well and likewise uh, shizako Indo is called the japanese graham green so oh, really? it all, yeah so i, I, all I didn't know that. together yeah that's that's wonderful um and so my my original and sort of obvious strain of thought was well let's talk about the third man for reasons that will become obvious if if you haven't seen since we're out of spoilers now if you haven't seen silence i won't spoil that but reasons that if you've seen both are somewhat obvious um, but I, you know, I thought people have probably seen the third man if they haven't, it's been recommended to them before. If you haven't, you should go rent it from your public library right now or, uh, find it by any means necessary. But I, I figure I'll shine a spotlight on, on this film, which is a little lesser known. It's actually, um, their first collaboration of three, uh, this being the first the third man being the second, which came out a year later. And then our man in Havana coming out about 10 years after that. Um, but the fallen idol, um, it's a, I mean, really, it's just a, a really tight suspense thriller sort of film. It's, it's fairly small, uh, but like all good, uh, sort of Hitchcockian style thrillers, it's functioning on the level of, entertainment and suspense, but also on another level of, you know, analyzing stuff. So what the story of this is, uh, there's this butler named Baines played by Ralph Richardson. He works in the French embassy in London, and he has this relationship with the ambassador's young son, uh, Philippe played by a non-actor who I think only had two roles, uh, uh, Bobby Henry. And it's sort of this slow burn, um, thriller where basically, uh, not to give too much away, Philippe, he, uh, kind of idolizes this Butler and he's sort of his best friend. He's, he's the guy that he always, always runs to for, um, anything that he needs. And over the course of the film, he sort of, as the title suggests, um, begins to see Baines in a different light, uh, over the, over the course of, uh, a series of events. And it only gets, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse. And the, I mean, it's only, I think it's a pretty tight, like 90 minutes or so. I would say the last hour of this film is really, uh, it's going to have you on the edge of your seat, just wondering like, how is all of this going to resolve in any great way? But the thing that is, like I said, it's, it's more than just a suspense movie. It's really an analysis of how, um, lying can affect a, a child's perspective. And it's, uh, the thing that's great about it is Carol Reed spends so much time giving you directly this, uh, Philippe character's perspective of the world. And so, um, he, he's doing, you know, he's putting camera in low places. He's also giving you his sort of, I, one of my favorite things of the third man is his, his classic Dutch angles that he, he gives you four little moments of, uh, to, to build up suspense or unease. Um, you've got, you've got those there, but then you've also got, uh, this, this kid, you know, only halfway understanding some of these adult things that are going on. And that sort of snowballs the whole narrative and, um, creates a great perspective that I feel like you don't see very often of, or experience very often of, okay, what does the world look like through a children, a child's eyes? Um, which just makes the, uh, the ultimate culminating suspense that much stronger. Uh, so that is the fallen idol. It's available to rent basically everywhere. Um, I would also suggest check your, uh, public library. And I think there's a, uh, I, I know there's a criterion DVD. I don't think there's a Blu-ray out, but, um, pick that up. There's a, there's a few solid special features on it. Little documentary about Carol Reed. Right on. Well, my recommendations, there's three, but I'll, uh, they're, they all kind of fall in together. And they're pretty obvious, but I think they're nevertheless uh, essential if you enjoy Star Wars. 
Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, exactly. And The Phantom Menace. Just watch Star Wars, guys. Um, But I I think even if they uh, are somewhat obvious, they're essential nevertheless, is I would recommend that you read the original novel, Silence, and then I would likewise uh, recommend that you see the Japanese film. The distinction between the Japanese film from the early 70s... Which you have recommended before. Yes, which I have recommended before, is that consistent with films of the 70s in general is that it's a little bit more cynical and a little bit more um uh uh doubtful as compared to both the novel silence and then also the scorsese picture silence so i think because that was actually my first experience of the stories i saw hmm. the japanese version of silence and then i read the book and then i saw the scorsese movie so see that and, you know, just take it as it will. And then also read the book. It's just if you like this story, if it if it moved you in any way, I think that you should try and experience as many media as possible. And so there's another film, there's another book. So I recommend that you do those. And then also I mentioned this during our review is A Life of Jesus, is that, as I mentioned, Shuzako Indu was a Japanese-born Christian convert. He con- he converted about by the time he was 12 or something like that. And he, a, a, a very gifted novelist, a very gifted storyteller, told the story of Christ in a way that was honest and true to the story, but at the same time was more appealing to a Japanese audience. Because as I said, they don't really go in for the fire and brimstone stuff. So he makes you look at, at at Christ in a new way, but at the same time, it's 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 not anything. He doesn't change it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's still the same story, but it's just looking at it in a way that you're not used to. So it it's it's beneficial for anyone, whether you're Japanese or not. He wrote it for a Japanese audience, but you're going to get something out of it uh, one way or the other. So my three recommendations are the novel Silence by Shizaku Endu. A Life of Jesus by Shizaku Endo, and then the early 1970s silence film. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, that, Hunter, is a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or you can say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan. It'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And the spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash thetailormachine. And shout out to Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors for the featured music on this week's show. Find their new album Souvenir, Spring Tour Dates, and more at drewholcomb.com. Join us not in another fortnight, but next week for our special features bonus episode on the 50-year career of Martin Scorsese with special guest Peterson Hill. Thanks for listening, folks. Sayonara. Chris, my question for you, not just about this beer pairing, but just in general, is do you think it is providence that the that water and then wine or beer or something like that are essentially the two earliest beverages? Before we had orange juice or fruit juice or or soft drinks or anything like that it's either water or alcohol and as and as i said at the front is that alcohol re- removes inhibitions mm-hmm. do you think that there's something to be said about that i i don't even that's that's a whole nother discussion we could have hunter i mean i particularly i'll speak to beer because i i know next to nothing about the history of wine um although i i'm sure there a lot of times side by side like I mean, the thing with beer is if people didn't realize beer had alcohol in it for years and years and they thought it had, you know, these these amazing powers to up your um, up your strength or up your, you know, uh, Guinness your, for your strength. stamina. Yeah, those those sorts of things. You know, they didn't even realize that there was yeast in beer until 
you know, like a century, century and a half ago. So, um, you know, there, there was a mystery to it. There was almost a mystical, uh, nature to it. So to answer your question, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty solid analogy for existence itself is that does it all just have a reasonable explanation or does the fact that it happened in the chronology that it happened, does that mean something? Who knows, man? Who knows? That's that. Yeah, that's that's bigger than we have uh, the opportunity to tackle right now. <laughs> um, well, silence is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors. And-